Thanks for listening to Looking Forward Our Way. We'd like to ask a favor from you. Would you give us some feedback on our podcast? We've made it really easy to do so. Click on the link in your episode show notes. That link will take you to our podcast Google My Business page. You may have to sign in to your Google account. From there, we'd appreciate your feedback on the podcast overall, feedback on a specific episode, or a suggestion on what you'd like to see us cover in a future episode. All your feedback is so much appreciated. Your comments only help us create episodes that will keep all of us looking forward our way. Research shows high-stakes testing has not improved learning. And we are using a single test to make a decision about a kid's life. We are looking forward our way from Studio C in the 511 Studios in the Brewery District, south of downtown Columbus. This is Brett, and with me is Carol, as always. How are you? I'm good, Brett. Thank you. And, you know, I'm so excited today. It is going to be great to talk about a really interesting topic here in Ohio, and it's one that's close to every parent We are going to explore issues facing our local school systems and why attempted reforms are failing. Ohio's educational system has not been funded at the appropriate level, directed by the Ohio Supreme Court for decades. A free public education is a founding principle of the United States and the platform for our children to grow, excel, and succeed in a chosen career for decades. However, children spend way too much time in their classes studying for high-stakes state exams. The questions surrounding our educational system are difficult, and the actions needed are critical. And that's why we want to welcome our guest today, representing the organization called CAPE Ohio, which stands for Citizen Advocates for Public Education. Uh, First, we have Dr. Margaret Coston. She's a retired mathematics educator. She served as a high school mathematics teacher and an elementary mathematics supervisor, was a mathematics consultant at the Ohio Department of Education. She was a faculty member at the Ohio State University, as well as director of the Ohio Resource Center for Mathematics, Science, and Reading. Her bachelor's and master's degrees are from the University of Missouri, and her PhD is from the Ohio State University. And Dr. James Bishop, he's a retired educational administrator. Dr. Bishop is the former dean of students Amherst College, former director of Ohio State University's Young Scholars Program, former interim president and chairman of the Board of Trustees of Lemoyne Owen College, former vice provost for University Life at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Bishop received his BS degree from Lemoyne Owen College and PhD in chemistry from MIT. Both of you, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. We're very, very glad to to be here. Uh, Carol, you spoke about how important education is for parents. Knowing your audience, we also hope that grandparents Absolutely. and aunts and uncles and all will realize the importance of public education. So thank you. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you, Peggy, too, for joining us. Uh, yes, I'd like to add my thanks to this opportunity. We're really excited about being able to share what we think is important, and we hope others will think it's important. Yeah, yeah I'm sure it will. Yeah. We're yes. Gonna... You know, and, and your point is is incredible, Jim, that when because as not being a parent or a grandparent 
Um, public education is so important, and I have to tell our listeners, I was very excited to have an opportunity to reconnect with Dr. Bishop because I used to watch him outside my window at Ohio State on West Campus with his young scholars running around West Campus. They were everywhere. <laughs> it was like, you know, this, this little swarm of kids coming, coming to see us every summer. Seeing these youngsters, the first group starting as they were rising seventh graders, on Ohio yes. State's campus from the nine urban districts of, of our state was always a very inspiring and joyful moment. It was. And they the kids were incredible. This mix of children from all over the state having fun together. How, how much better can it be? So let's get started and talk about Cape Ohio. Um, Jim, give us an overview of the founding of the of Cape Ohio. The members, I think, are all um, educators or previous educators. You know, what catalyst brought this group together? Well, Carol and, and Brett, we very much are glad to be here. And this question gives us the wonderful opportunity to talk about what we see as a very unique organization. All of us in Cape Ohio have considerable experience in education in Ohio with past strong involvement with the public schools and programs that are were designed and were very effective in improving those schools and the teaching and learning there. Most of us were educated in Ohio's college and universities and have taught in Ohio's public schools and have served in state or statewide programs in education, mostly public education. Uh, although we're retired, we are very, very active when you went through my bio about all of the formal things, I should give you a long list of all the things I'm doing now I can as a volunteer. Exactly, <laughs> sure. Yes, it's a new retiree. My schedule's a lot busier, and I can't understand <laughs> Well, I think your audience might want to know who some of the other organizers of sure. CAPE are. And let me go through some of, those, uh, some of those for you. Mrs. Carol Brown Dotson is a retired English language arts educator. She's a past president of the Ohio Council of English Language Arts. She was the Columbus City Schools K-12 English Language Arts Supervisor, an English Language Arts Consultant for the Department of Education, and a specialist for the Ohio Resource Center at Ohio State University. She handles very splendidly our website technology to which we hope your audience will go. Yes. The website. Mm-hmm. Another member is Dr. Linda Finner, who has been a teacher, a language arts consultant, a school librarian, a curriculum director, a STEM project manager, a school district superintendent. Her dissertation was on using student portfolios to examine learning cultures, how students determine the value of their work, how they construct arguments, and she keeps us really informed on articles and issues, especially from the web and current publications. Another key member of our organizers would be Dr. Mark Stewart. He's worked both in Columbus and Dublin City Schools as a social studies educator uh, and author. He has tremendously influenced both social studies curriculum and instructors. He's a past president of the Ohio Council of Social Studies and served on the development teams of both Ohio's model competency-based social studies program and Ohio's academic content standards in social studies. He joins Linda, Linda Finner, as a scholar and the principal writer for Cape Ohio. 
Dr. Frances Smith Strickland is an educational psychologist, and she is known to most of, of you and the audience as the former First Lady of Ohio. She taught in public, middle, and high schools and worked with special needs students in various settings. The group is actually a continuation of conversations that were started during uh, Ted Strickland's administration. Uh, if, if you will remember during those times, there was a big focus on funding and equity. That seems to be uh, an ongoing thing with Ohio schools. Mm-hmm. Francis put together a group um, that, that focused on creativity and innovation in schools and what we could really do to transform education for kids. Um, when the administration was over, Francis put together a group of retired educators, I think to continue the conversations on creativity and innovation, but we've morphed. Um, It's almost a luxury to be able to talk about those things when we've got other pressing issues. So we want to talk about pragmatic issues like the importance and survival of public education in addition to having the very best opportunities for our kids in schools. Uh, Our audience is really anybody who cares about Ohio's children and stakeholders who are concerned with the future of this state and this country. You know, I want to give a shout out to our listeners to let them know we're going to have, as always, a resources page connected to this podcast on our website. And it's going to give a lot of information in general about education, but specifically about Cape Ohio and ways to get in touch with Cape Ohio if you have questions. One of the things I've already started doing is sending out the website on Cape Ohio to all of my friends who are educators um, be- that are current educators because they need to know you know, what those conversations are because I think that they not only will learn from the conversations, but they may also have more information to give to you. So mm-hmm. that's wonderful. Well, in, in Cape Ohio, I've, <laughs> I've really learned some additional things that I didn't know from my other work, and that is how much efforts are really needed just to try to aid and to improve public education beyond the funding issues. Mm-hmm. But also, and this is much more important, I think, nowadays than we ever thought it was, but to counter what, there's no other way of putting this, major threats to our public education. Now, the, my colleagues in, in, in CAPE say, I'm the one who pushes for actions. And later we'll tell you about some of the actions we've been doing here, uh, doing with CAPE Ohio. Well, you know, Peggy, the vision statement of Cape Ohio discusses both the need for education to be adaptive as well as the need for de- developing children as individuals. Can you re- provide a, a bit more comprehensive picture of the organization, what the purpose and, and what you do hope to accomplish? We have a twofold advocacy strategy. First is we've got to advocate for the existence of public education. We think that's fundamental to the common good. It's fundamental mm-hmm. to democracy. It's absolutely basic. But in addition to that, we want to help identify and advocate for research-based curriculum and instructional strategies that will meet the needs of Ohio's diverse student population. Um, One of the things we hope to accomplish, and this is maybe a little bit esoteric, I don't know, 
But we want every Ohioan, and especially policymakers, to have a vision of what public education should be for all students. Um, once we're clear on that vision and that we can, we can coalesce around a vision of what it ought to look like when kids go to school, then we have kind of a laundry list of things that we deal with. Um, flex- uh, equity is a very big thing. Flexibility in schools to provide high-quality learning experiences to a wide range of kids on a, with a wide range of interests. We want assessments that support learner growth rather than giving learner a label or rank. We believe in assessment. We're worried about the system as it now exists. Right. We want to be able to support teachers in functioning as professionals, and we want to have resources to support high-quality learning <clears throat> and teaching. You know, I, this is just so incredibly timely. Anyone who thinks that teachers are not a pivotal part of a child's life after this pandemic has not been watching the news. CAPE has a very straightforward, clear purpose. That purpose is to challenge, to encourage, and to aid educators, policymakers, community, and institutions, and let me say parenthetically, by policymakers, we also see citizens involved in that one because citizens speak and vote, and we're glad they would do that. But anyway, we want to aid them in creating their visions for what public education should be, and then to use that vision to guide them in embracing equity, as Peggy referred to, opening opportunities for all, all citizens, young and old, to thrive, and most importantly, for preparing future generations for meaningful democratic citizenship. Now, if you go to our website, you will see some of our activities. We put a lot on vision, principles, position papers. We also conduct workshops. We've done some with the uh, with PEP, uh, Public Policy Partners. We have also interviewed Columbus Board of Education candidates and have published on our website the results of those interviews. We have talked with legislators and some of the state Board of Education members. We have attended candidate forums. We have a network. We're trying to increase our network with other public education support groups, such as PEP, which we referred to, but at one point with the uh, Cleveland Heights Education uh, Association. We responded to the filming of that book, that, that film, Backpack Full of Cash, which shows how many people see every student having a lot of money associated with them, and they're trying to get it and to influence it. We have sponsored a community uh, book discussion about the testing charade, which talks about how, how badly people have used, how harmful ways people have used high-stake testing. We are in the process of resourcing the origin of school segregation in the Columbus City Schools, its lasting effects, and trying to develop a plan for how we can address the continuing systemic inequities caused by policies of former community leaders. I, I kind of mentioned a little bit ago on the, the that the essence of education, that 
it is essential for our children to have a good quality education. Um, I'm concerned about that level of quality. Many individuals are concerned. Others don't think there's a problem. Cape Ohio has adopted fundamental principles to help guide school systems toward a new vision. So let's just talk briefly about some basic changes that Cape Ohio is addressing. You know, why schools should not be viewed as a business and that education is a commodity. Well, let's talk about that. Let's also address something else, and that is a sense that our public school system are failing. We do not believe that is the case at all. So any questions about that one, give us a chance to talk about the value and the successes of our public school system. I, I can say I believe that our public school systems on the whole are not failing, and most schools are not failing. Those who claim that our schools are failing include many folks and organizations that are seeking to, and this word I use advisedly, destroy public schools and to replace them with private or charter schools, but finance with the funds intended for public schools. Now, of course, uh, all public schools can improve. Some need to improve a lot more than others. The teachers, the parents, the principals, and the boards of those schools all want and need substantial support to improve. It's our, our meaning everyone's, moral moral and legal obligation to provide adequate funding and support for all public schools and to provide sufficient funds for each and every public school to serve very well all of its students, each of whom has his or her individual strengths, interests, backgrounds, needs, and pace of learning. The concept that the public perceives failing schools is very interesting to me. My science friends have this... um, kind of acronym that they use, CER, you hear a claim, you need to look for the evidence, and you need to research it. Um, That's a common claim, Mm -hmm. and a lot of people use the phrase, if you look at the evidence, if you look at the long-term growth of the National Assessment of Educational Progress, if you look at um, the Gallup poll has done surveying with Phi Delta Kappa, which is an education honorary, for years and years and years. And what they've found is that the public perception is pretty good about schools. It's much better about local schools. And if you are the parent of a child at a public school, you think your school is doing pretty well. The closer you are to the situation the less likely you are to believe that rhetoric, and yet that is the rhetoric. And we ask people to look at the claim and look for the evidence. So this kind of, my my brain is going two ways here. Number one, and it goes back to an earlier comment you made, that CAPE is trying to help individuals see the vision of schools, what they can be. And if we knew better what they can be, 
we would likely be doing a better job of evaluating the school systems and not always seeing it as literally a yes or no question. It's right. not failing or great. It's moving along a plane. Not just what they can be. That seems a minimum wish for it. But what they ought to be ideally. Okay. I, and I, I meant that, but that's thoroughly. a good way to look at right. it. Okay. When we're looking at the evidence, oftentimes individuals are trying to show failure in public schools and success in charter schools. And and I don't know that they've really shown that success in charter schools by any stretch of the imagination. I think they, they if if you really look at the data, that's not what you're gonna see. So when when I mentioned in my question that schools should not be looked at as a business and education as a commodity, whatever we look at in terms of evaluating public schools should be used for all of the systems, charter, private, whatever. And then that way we're really getting a better feel for where each of those systems work well or don't work well. Because, it, you know, this whole funding issue, and I know I know we're not going to focus on funding today, but the whole funding issue is looking at we want to better use taxpayers' dollars and we can better use it in the charter schools. And that's not – that's not should not be what the question or the topic should be. The topic should be where are they and where can they be. But your question about charter schools is absolutely accurate. Uh, in 2019, Stanford published – uh, an analysis of Ohio's charter schools that can be found on something called Credo at Stanford. And, and the the bottom line result was um, charter schools do not perform in a manner that is superior in general. And that doesn't mean that there aren't charter schools. It doesn't mean that there are traditional public schools. But in general, they don't perform better than traditional public schools. Right. And that's the data. And that's the evidence, and that's not the common understanding. And and that's what we need people to hear, because if they're only listening to what policymakers are are saying and making funding decisions based on what they're saying, that's what's going to really change our public education system. Right. And that's what we're trying to – I don't want to say fight, but what we're trying to <laughs> – um, negate some of that negativity. I went to high school, Booker T. Washington High School, in segregated Memphis, Tennessee. The white high school was about eight blocks from my house. Booker T. Washington was two miles from my house. So I finished there in 1954. I say that because we all should keep in mind that shortly after, in that month of 1954, the United States Supreme Court said that separate but equal public schools were illegal. Now, what has happened in the 57 years since that decision? As you can remember, some states got rid of public schools, tried to give their money to private schools. Where are we now? I'm sad to say we're almost back to that. Mm-hmm. We have people now taking money from the public schools, giving them to private schools, most of them for profit in the name of charters, though they claim they are public because they're using public money. They're losing voucher systems for taking funds, again, from the public public, public schools. The net effect, it's sad to say, 
combined with other red lighting and, and actions by housing and housing location, we here in America have schools that are probably, if not more segregated now, than they were when the Supreme Court made this decision years ago. Ohio has entirely abandoned the state's constitutional mandates. Three times, I believe, our Supreme Court has made a mandate requiring adequate and equitable school funding. Lots of resource shows little evidence that reforms as well as charter schools have led to a more equitable society or to national gains in student uh, achievement. Decades ago, there was a person in mathematics education who invented uh, a finger math thing called Chisenbop. <laughs> and he guaranteed that any student that used his method would know their basic facts in one week. <laughs> All of them, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. I went to a national meeting uh, where he made a presentation, and he got up and he had lots of charts and he showed lots of data about why this method works and we should all adopt this. However, it is a proprietary method, and you have to give me money before I tell you what this method is. When he finished his presentation, a man in the room stood up and he said, Sir, if you truly have the key to help children, you're going to charge for it. I have to say that's wrong. If we know what we can do to help kids, we should do that. Um, In a more general way, the purpose of business is to make a profit. The purpose of public education is to help all children. And I, I don't necessarily want to say they're diametrically opposed, but I clearly care about helping children Mm -hmm. and not about making a profit. If I'm running a school and I need to make a profit, my decisions will be very different than if I'm focusing on the student. And and I think it just comes down to everyone concerned about money being spent well. We all do, of course, because no one wants to vote against or – have a tax levy come right. on on the ballot, and, and that just hurts. But we also know that it's a necessity if we really want to help everyone get better <laughs> and our and our whole society get better, right. uh, our our communities get better. So yeah, well you know um, Peggy as a as a father of two children, one still in public school, one went through public school and 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 now finishing up at Kent State. I hope their school administrators and teachers saw them as thinking intelligent individuals who could excel even. Farther with the resources available, Cape Ohio views educational systems as the place for children to grow their intellect and their potential, uh, which will prepare them for their future. Can you give us uh, the background on the concepts? Even when I was in the classroom, which was a long time ago, but when I was teaching in the classroom, even teachers believed you've got a fixed amount of intelligence. It's what you've got. You're born with it. That's the way it's going to be. You're a bright kid. You're not a terribly bright kid. That's all wrong. I don't want to talk about technical things like brain plasticity or anything, but we know that kids can learn to learn and that we have underserved 
many, many children because we didn't know about that. Mm. Learning theory, education is a discipline. Learning theory can really help us know how to teach children, all children, in a better way. Um, But that's a big change in the system. That's a big change in the system for parents. We have to ask the cooperation of parents. Um, As a math person, you cannot imagine how many people, my dentist did it this week, tell me, well, I just don't understand. I tried to help my child with their math, and it's just not the way to do it. (laughs) (laughs) You mean all those tips that my cousin taught me when I was a little girl don't work anymore? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they sort of work, (laughs) but they don't lead to deep understanding. All the tricks don't lead to deep understanding. We didn't know that. We really didn't 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. So now we need to change the way we teach children. And um, this is hard for parents. I mean, school is, is, has been a connective thing for parents. The world is so different than it used to be. And yet you go to school, I went to school, I sort of know what's happening. Well, you shouldn't know what's happening. Because medicine's different, technology's different, everything's different. And school, that thing we hang on to, that thing we love, that thing we remember, that needs to be different for children. I guess one good example being, I know there was a very short time when our son, uh, elementary school, cursive, gone. And and both Angie and I are scratching our head going, how in the world is he going to sign any legal documents if he doesn't learn how to spell, how to write in cursive? And that was short-lived, maybe a year. Again, I think it's a good example. Mm-hmm. Wherever that came from, it went away very fast. <laughs> that Okay, back into, yes, they must learn how. Otherwise, we're going to have a lot of X's on legal documents um, or just scribbles that looks like you know doctors <laughs> writing right. out prescriptions. Right. So I, I think, yes, we have to be open to the changes are inevitable. Because we're learning more and more about how to teach better. There, there does need to be a balance. Mm-hmm. I, yes. I, I, gave, yeah. I gave one of my favorite quotes, and I can't tell you said it, so I probably shouldn't use it. Um, there are two kinds of fools. Those who say, this is old and therefore good. And those who say, this is new and therefore better. Teachers struggle every day to figure mm-hmm. out the right methodology, the right instructional strategies to use with kids. But, but we are moving forward and we are improving mm-hmm. and we ask for the support of parents and grandparents in doing this. And Peggy, I love your, the, the, the phrase, learn to learn. You know, I spent uh, nearly 30 years on Ohio State's campus and I can't even tell you the number of parents I talk to with their young adult children um, in school looking at me going, what are they going to do with a sociology degree, which are, is my discipline? Um, they'll never get a job. And I always went back to that notion of your high schooler can get a job. Your college bachelor's graduate can get a job. The difference is the uh, the level of the ab- 
ability to learn and learning to learn and continuing that path for the rest of their lives into continued learning for a lifetime. And so I had always thought it was, you know, it started at 12 and going through college, but I see the value of what you're saying. This is, um, this is not just a change in idea. This is a change in our attitude towards what education should be for all of us. And that if we're giving it to our children, they will have it for their children and grandchildren and generations. So thank you for that. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Needless to say, one of the favorite things we've said that in all of our podcasts is, well, this has been a year. <laughs> this this pandemic has created incredible disruption in our schools. Um, the outcry from so many was to stop the assessment system through this the pandemic because the children were doomed to failure in the assessments. They just hadn't been with their teachers. They hadn't been in their classrooms. Um, but we can see um, even before this pandemic that Cape Ohio was, you know, believed the assessment process was flawed. Um, can you provide us a little bit insight on what that assessment should look like? Most people have in mind when they're referring to assessments of public schools, unfortunately, high stakes testing. Mm -hmm. Three or four times a year, all students in a certain grade and a certain uh, subject (laughs) are given these high-stakes tests that have implications, not just for the students, but for the school and often for the teacher and the school system in terms of how people perceive it and what kind of funds are going there. The pandemic has indeed exacerbated some of the differences among learners and some of their learning conditions. The gaps in however way you measure them are probably wider now than they were before, especially because during the pandemic, we had widespread gaps in access to technology, mm-hmm. whether that was in the house or whether it was the Internet system that came in to the school or to the nearby fast food or someplace else. And that's just not in rural areas. In, in, in urban areas, that was a major problem in some of our rural areas. And that we're not altogether sure what was, quote, lost, unquote, lost during this time. We know some opportunities to explore some things, to work with teachers, work with other students, and many of that was lost. What has been lost has been debated. It's going to continue to be debated. Unfortunately, some people are going to look at standardized test scores and then draw very strong conclusions without a lot of details based on the students of what was lost and what was not lost. Now, teachers can tell us this is the most important assessment. They can tell us much more than standardized tests of what their students lost, if you want to use that term, when the teachers didn't have regular contact uh, with them. There's no substitute for teachers' skills and insights of their students. That's the assessment we think will be most important when students are coming back to full-time students. It's very important that teachers have the flexibility and the time to do such assessment of their teachers and then to respond to it. Kids can learn to learn. What did kids learn about learning during the pandemic when they were away from their regular classes? You know, one piece of that that I feel 
may be missing as well, too, is I think we've lost the trust yes. that teachers yes. should be given. Yes. They earned it. Yes. And some reason that these outside forces have to come in to assess and say, teachers, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know how to assess because you're rigging it. You're, of course, you're going to say the student's doing well, this, that, and the other. <laughs> I think that that trust is gone or been been squashed down, let's put it that. And this is the long time making because I, I, I get that from my wife. She works, teaches future educator at Wright State University. Yes. And this, this assessment stuff is wearing on teachers as well, that they feel they're not trusted, that why am I doing this job when outside forces are telling me I have to basically teach to the test, mm-hmm. that I can't do what I need to do Right. To make sure these students are, are – I, right. I, I just see that, that trust factor is completely gone, and we've got to bring that back. It, it's just like any other employee at any other business. So You hire them to do a job. Trust them that they're doing it. Right. Yes, there has to be some assessments. Everybody has assessments placed on them in their job, Right. whether it's your, your sales rep and you have to make goal. Okay. Or any other, you're making a widget. Well, you've got to create so many widgets. Okay, they they teach students. And don't you think that they can trust their own systems <laughs> to say they've done a good job? Well, and, and so then the real question is, if if the assessments aren't really giving us the information we need and they're really not necessarily helping the students, what's driving the assessments? In a business commodity oh. model – the companies who make money on the assessments Correct. could be the drivers. And is that who should be driving our public education systems? Yes. Yeah. That's all very well said. Thank you all. Yeah. No, right. I mean, and, I've, and I've seen that for a long time. It's, right. just, it's just very evident and just chipping away at this. And it's frustrating. Brett, may I go back to your word trust? It's a very important one. <laughs> Most of us learn to trust people not from data that may come from them, from their interactions. Mm-hmm. Personal interactions. Parents go to schools. They may encourage others. Contact the principal, contact the teachers, and request to observe, or more importantly, to volunteer in those school settings to see what's taking place and build the trust on that basis of direct involvement, of direct observation, and then of talking to kids about, hey, what worked, what did work in your school, what did your teachers do? Uh, get the teachers, the kids to come home and teach you what they learn in school. They like that. Jim, you know, along with the doctors and nurses, we all saw the resilience, expertise, and professionalism of our teachers during the pandemic. Cape Ohio documented many issues regarding the training and professional development of teachers and administrators and the importance of continued learning and training for those teachers. Um, can you provide us with a little bit of a synopsis of what expectations we should have of our educators and what <coughs> educators should be receiving from their school systems? Well, thank you, Carol. Let, let me just come back a little bit and talk about our hospitals and our schools during this, during this pandemic. Attention, quite rightfully, should go to doctors and nurses, but let's keep in mind, most of the staff who help the sick are first responders, nurses' aides, technical workers, right. assistants, cleaning staff, and all of the others who throughout the day 
of providing direct care and often the only personal touch and eye contact for patients. This pandemic has also vividly shown to parents and teachers and others the resilience, the expertise, and the professionalism and importance of our teachers, as well as the crucial roles, crucial roles of drivers, cafeteria workers, right. school nurses, librarians, custodians, and others in the daily lives before, during, and after school for our students. All of them participate in this education and development of students. So let's hope that voters are going to remember <clears throat> these factors, all that took place during this pan- pandemic, when the next election rolls around and there's a school levy on the ballot. And one of the issues is we need to provide more time and more assistance to provide professional training for our teachers and staff and others. We in Cape strongly believe that just as teachers need the training before they get their teacher certificate through in-classroom training and observing in workshops, teachers need and want such training throughout their careers. We've talked a little bit about technology, but among the things we're learning is that teachers have found that through technology, they can share their ideas, their questions, their concerns with other teachers in their district, across the nation, and in some cases around the world. We also know that teachers need more time during the day and the week for just planning, professional development, refreshing their ideas and their thoughts, check with us and say, did this work? How could I do it differently? So you will see throughout much of what we say in Cape, teachers are the core, not the sole person, but the core to teaching. And just as, because people often go back to it, doctors are required by law to have a certain amount of professional training Teachers are required in many districts by law to do it, but we believe the minimum is insufficient. Mm -hmm. Teachers should have the time, the money, the support, and the encouragement to participate in continued professional development and, and training. Well, you know, Peggy, one item we can't forget is the issue of accountability for the success of our children and the education system. We kind of alluded that a little bit. You know, parents want to be sure their children are learning. And that we as taxpayers, whether we have kids in school or not, uh, to be sure that the funding is properly utilized. What does Cape Ohio suggest should happen to ensure such accountability exists? Accountability is a big issue. And let me start by saying I'm a taxpayer in the state of Ohio. I have a grandson in the public schools in the state of Ohio. I care deeply about the issue. But, boy, it's a complicated It is, isn't it? It really is, yeah. We have a funding system that, um, because of property taxes, divides our school districts into high-wealth and low-wealth districts with very inequitable resources available for the kids. And we have to really grapple with that. We have to think of it mm-hmm. in an emotional and, and personal basis. Um, I told this story about my daughter who was a 
uh, high school mathematics teacher in an urban district in the state of Ohio has a story about going to see some of her students participate in a track meet at a very affluent suburban district. And she said as she walked up to the area where the kids were, one of her students ran over to her and said, Miss Caston, Miss Caston, you should see their locker room. And we know these terrible, inequitable situations exist, and we want to be accountable for taxpayer dollars. Do we make all the locker rooms in all the high schools be the best they can be? What's, what's your answer to that? What do you want for your kids? All right. What do you want for other people's kids? All right. The other issue about accountability in Ohio is that I'm afraid we've gone a little too far in using test results as our primary measure of accountability. And I think people look for things that are, first of all, that they relate to and they think they understand. Um, I'll tell another story. When our only daughter was in first grade, the first grade had decided that instead of giving first graders letter grades, because they thought that was a little harsh, (laughs) they would do a more portfolio kind of thing. Now, my husband is a retired professor of electrical engineering, and he's a pretty stereotypical guy (laughs) in that way. And so we went to see our daughter's teacher, and we sat for more than a half an hour, I think, and she went through stack after stack after stack and told us how Sarah was doing here and phonetically and numeric, went on and on and on. And we left, and I said to my husband, wasn't that nice? And he said to me, yeah, but I just wish I knew how she was doing. (laughs) He wanted to know if she was an A student or a B student. Right. And and we have a tendency to want to make, make difficult, complicated things uh, simple. And so we want something like a test. We'll give them a test and we'll see if the teachers – and this, this really relates to the things you were talking about earlier. We'll give them a test and we'll see if the teachers are doing their jobs – and the kids are learning what they ought to. Research shows high-stakes testing has not improved learning. And we are using a single test to make a decision about a kid's life. I, I, I tell this story. When I started as a graduate student at Ohio State, um, I was in mathematics education, and then at that time there was a, a requirement that you had to pass a math test to get a Ph.D. in math ed. And I had to write three hours in analysis and three hours in abstract algebra. And I was scared for one year. I was worried for one year because I had to go take this test. And I knew that if I passed that test, my life was going to be different. I was 29 years old, and I wanted to be there. How must a high school student feel if they have to take a test that's going to change the course of their life. Um, We can't use single tests to make decisions about young people. My um, grandson told me when he was in fourth grade, my teacher told me today it was really important that I do well on the state tests 
because it reflects on her. Oh, goodness. It's easier for a parent to understand where their child is based on that grade comparison and test score because it's quick, easy information. And particularly if they got several kids, you can only take in so much information. And I guess what I'm saying is I agree with you, a grade and a test are probably not what that child needs. But then we really have to think about how do we educate the parents to understand the, where the child is. I, if, if we can't give them that little tiny box of information of a grade and a test score, then yes. And I, do they have the time, the flexibility, and the ability to understand all of that needs to, to happen about with, for their child? So when we're talking about accountability for the teachers in the school system, we really need to talk about accountability of the parents or caregivers or guardians because there is a responsibility on their part more than just telling the kid to do their homework. I know it's hokey, but education is a shared responsibility. And it's a shared responsibility clearly for teachers, parents, grandparents, but it's a shared responsibility for the society. But it's, it's so important to all of us to have a good system. It's an economic driver. It's a, a, it's a morally enhancing driver. We need to understand where these tests are coming from, who's driving these tests. And as parents, we need to understand, okay, what company is facilitating this test and what's the driver behind it? Who's the company that owns this test and how did it get through legislation that we must give these tests? Mm-hmm. Follow the money. Right. And and, and I think it, it counters the best of what we can do by understanding and putting it in, in in perspective of, okay, here's this A, B student. Here's the test. Well, this test is actually driven by so-and-so company out of Texas, and they're doing it for profit. Right. And they're selling all these school systems, and they're in their legislators being pushed to do this test because it's the, the thing well, to when, do. And understand, okay, this has a little bit of value. Get it. Okay, but this is where it's coming from. That bothers me to no end if we don't talk about where these tests are coming right. from and who's who's funding them and who, how they're being driven through sure. legislation to be put on our students. Well, and and the, I mean the ACT and the SAT oh, are yeah. the perfect example, example that, of how things are squirrely. And I am hoping to no end that because of the pandemic those two go away. Yeah. Well, I, well, I hope good, so. Good point that they may. Because I think we're seeing the bar of, of entrance into college not necessarily have to pinge on ACT and SAT. My, my son, junior going into his senior year, well, that test, those tests will not be a deterrent or a positive or a negative for him to get into college in 2022. Rich, your, your point is wonderful. Yeah. We and Cape are not saying that all standardized tests are bad. No, and some I don't mean that at all. Yeah, they're, they're, they're useful. Some are useful. You bet they are. It's yeah. a high stakes one. Right. There are tests exactly. that can give an excellent mm-hmm. assessment of a school based on national standards and comparison with national mm-hmm. standards. Uh, it just struck me. I don't think I've ever used this word before. Others have. Parents are really the first teachers. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Right. If yeah. we say that. The teachers in kindergarten and preschool 
and middle school and high school and college need professional training, should or not our society provide training and care and support to parents, I put it differently, even to pre-parents, when they know they're pregnant, why aren't we giving, I mean, our society, help and encouragement to parents on how to do that one. Often, and you've got grandparents in your, in your audience, grandparents have to do it for their children when their grandparents are on the way. Some members of our citizenship do not have those access. Our belief is education ought to start early, pre-birth, and continue through life. So I think your question is a very good one. It's not part of our educational system. Right. It's almost as if the educational system begins at pre-K, in some cases is only in, I mean, at K, not pre-K. Well, and in theory, if education has worked well for a person, an individual, they've gotten through K through 12, they've been successful at the college level, and then planning to be parents, ideally, they've learned that through that K through 16 even time period. So really what we're looking at is not just how are we teaching our children, how are we helping them learn to learn, how are we helping them become young people prepared to get out of a college or an associate's degree or training or whatever to then be also part of educating their children. I mean, it's kind of the old home ec model in some ways. During the past year, the news has highlighted teachers not just Zooming with their students for the class time, but checking in via technology, even drive-by parades to say hello to kids and families, sidewalk visits, and so many other ways teachers have checked in, socially distanced, of course. Um, I think we can all agree that teachers and schools play a major role in the lives of our children and families. We've, we've talked about that uh, quite a bit in this in this episode. Uh, Peggy, can you tell us how the principles of Cape Ohio will strengthen and enhance our community? If you read the 14 principles, you might not see a real direct connection. Our belief in democracy and the common good undergird everything we advocate for, and each of those 14 principles are undergirded by those ideas. It's all about community. It's all about helping Every child become a productive part of a healthy and nurturing society. That's, I mean, that if you if you look at those in total, that's where we're trying to get. I've known a lot of teachers over the last fifty years, and they are not all perfect. But the vast, vast majority of teachers and of people who go into education didn't go into it to make money. They didn't go into it for the status. They didn't go into it to have an easy job because it's not. Or to just have summers off. Or to have summers (laughs) off. That quote. (laughs) They went into education to help kids and make a better world. And that's community. Mm -hmm. That's what we look for in CAPE and what we care about. Preparing kids to read, to follow instructions, to measure would equip them exceptionally well in many well-paying jobs. Jobs of the day require a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. Among the things that jobs and careers require today and more so tomorrow will be 
thinking, yes. adapting to change and challenges, working with others, synthesizing a variety of ideas and data and concept, presenting those graphically in words and other ways. Right. In doing that one, that's what we believe is how education helps our society in the long run. If a student has learned to be resilient, adaptable, and have the confidence from school, I can do it. I can face the challenge with others. That student is well prepared for the future. That's the kind of student I hope in my retired days will be one of my neighbors. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it's interesting that that whole block of of what we call soft skills in the economic terms were what we used to tell my clients who were older adults looking for jobs that employers need today that young people can't do. Analyze information, think critically, follow through, all those <laughs> sorts of things. So we're seeing a huge circle here where it, it for a while education was directed to specific tasks. Right as opposed to helping our children learn to learn. And that's, it's, so not just making a better community, but making a stronger economic status within our community because we have people who are capable of doing the jobs we need to have done. Oh my gosh, we have had an incredible conversation and thank you so much to both of you um, for being with us today. A lot of little bits and pieces are hanging here. So I want to give you both an opportunity to kind of summarize a little bit, take on some ideas that maybe we didn't completely flesh out and come up with an overview for our audience. Well, we're going to try to do that. Let me go back and mention one item, which has come out so much during this pandemic, and that's technology. Right. Our students and teachers and mother groups have very much had to rely on technology in new ways. Now, it's going to cause some people to believe, okay, why don't we rely even more so on, techn- on technology? And there's some points here I think we in CAPE and others very much need to know. Technology has been around with us. It's going to be around with us for much more in the future. It can help to do some good things. One of the things we like to say is technology can be a multiplier. It allows more possibilities, more creativity, more connections, and a diversity of thinking. But we also need to say... Technology as a tutor, as a teacher, for individual instruction, for the most part, has been disappointing. It can help learning. It can never replace human teachers. Right. We also need to note, in conjunction with the data from high-stakes testing and others, and increased technology in the classroom, there are other problems that come up. Privacy of our students and teachers, preventing cyberbullying there. We now have in our nation unofficial guidelines from these big corporations about protecting student data. These intentions are good. However, there are no federal and few state regulations holding companies accountable for protecting privacy. I believe some bills were introduced in Congress recently. And let's hope that before the, po- the policymakers up top impose certain technologies on the teacher, 
that has been researched with teacher input to say, yeah, this works well for me and my colleagues and our students. You know, that that lesson I learned even before I became a nonprofit manager, I met with a gentleman who um, made a fortune in the dot-com time period and was connected to some on, on boards of nonprofits at the time in which technology was growing. And all the nonprofits were going broke because they kept trying to figure out ways to have more technology. They, you know, they thought of technology as their program. And he went into their boards and said, technology is a tool. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. You use that tool to the nth degree, but that is not your program. And so we learned it in nonprofit, the nonprofit world. And so education, who has been the driver of technology, literally, it's, it's still a lesson to be learned. Yes. We really believe that public education is the foundation of a democratic society. We really believe that. Mm-hmm. We hope other people will continue to examine claims, look for evidence about that belief. We hope they engage in dialogue about public education. We hope they can come to embrace it in the same way we do. Um, It's really the future of this country and this state. Um, We do have some things that we're planning and working on. We're examining, I think this was mentioned before, uh, the historical racism and segregation in the Columbus public schools and the effects of that. We are starting to talk about artificial intelligence in public education and the good things and the bad things and hope to have some papers on that. Um, We are considering doing another book study, another community book study, and um, we just encourage everybody to go to our website and contact us. We would love to talk to you about public education. I I want to thank both of you for being with us and our listeners. Make sure that you check out the resources sheet that we will have included in our on our website with the podcast link. Um, I have already been sending out the Cape Ohio website to my friends, including former school teachers in Chicago and around the country. Um, Send out that website link and just let your friends and family and colleagues um, know what's going on and that there are people who are really trying to help our public education in Ohio. And um, so, again, our thanks to both of you. Yes, thank you. And thank Thank you, you. Thank you.